Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 10. And we'll read through chapter 12, verse 3. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpashad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered, fathered Arpashad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Arpashad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpashad lived after he had fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ruh. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ruah 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ruah had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarag. And Ruah lived after he fathered Sarag 207 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Sarag had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Surig lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. And Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no, children, no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be blessed, a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You can have a seat. Now we said at the beginning of this series in Genesis that Genesis had a prologue and then it had ten sections each identified with this phrase these are the generations of. But the book is also split into two major divisions, two major pieces, two major parts. The early history of the world, the first 20 generations, we just read the second, the generations 11 through 20, 
And then the second part of the book, the generations of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Perhaps you can count Joseph if you'd like. So three or four generations there. Today, we are going to finish up the first half, the first part of Genesis. And I know, I know what you're thinking. Moses didn't do a very good job of splitting this very evenly, right? You know, it's... The middle of the book comes in chapter 11, a 50-chapter book, right? And there's 20 generations at the beginning, and then the, the rest of it's like three or four generations. But, you know, like if you've ever gone to a play or a musical, that oftentimes the intermission isn't technically in the middle, time-wise, chronologically, But it does typically happen at a critical moment in the story. And this is the critical moment of Genesis. We said at the outset of this entire book that you could sum it up in one sentence, right? God keeps his promises. And it's at this critical transition that we're going to cover today in part, and then we'll cover... Again, when we pick Genesis back up in the fall, we're going to take a break for a little bit from Genesis. But it's in this critical transition that God makes the most critical promises of the entire book. And you may say, in some ways, the entire Bible. And that is surprising. And it's surprising because... We are probably at the worst moment in human history in the book of Genesis, right? From Genesis 3 to Genesis 11, outside of just a few glimmers of hope that it gives us, things have seemed to go from bad to worse to more worser, if you will, right? capping last week with the story of the Tower of Babel, which is the crowning achievement of humanity's selfish pride. The more humanity does, the more humanity seems to mess things up. I don't know about you guys. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. The more you do, the more you seem to mess things up. The more you try, the more significantly you mess things up. When you feel like you have finally gotten something right, and you start to say, hey, look, look, I, look at me, I did it. Then it goes terribly wrong, and you've just brought attention to the fact that you screwed up again, right? Maybe it's just me that feels that way sometimes. And that's what we see is the state of humanity in Genesis 11, except we see that not just at a personal level, we see that at a cosmic level, at a worldwide level. We start talking about things like salvation, eternity, think to myself, man, I can't even get 
I can't even get through today without messing something up. How am I going to get to eternity without messing this up? What hope do I have for that? And it leaves us wondering, what about the promises that God has made? If anything, this is the moment for God to come and to say, Hey, humans, about those promises that I said, um, yeah, we're going to have to scratch that because you're not working out so well, right? That's what it would be like for me as a a dad. If I had promised my kids, hey, we're going to go do X, Y, Z on Saturday evening and Saturday morning comes and they're just horrible and all day they're just you know just terrible you know freaking out acting up tantrums whatever by by saturday night i'm like you know what look like i know i said we were going to do this but like i can't anymore and i'm not like we're gonna have to scratch that i mean yet god does something totally different there is here this major twist In the story, at this exact moment, when all hope seems to be lost, when no human could possibly say that they've done anything, God inserts himself in the history of this tragic world, and he doubles down on his promises. He does the exact opposite of what we would do, the exact opposite of what we would expect. How can God do this? It almost seems foolish, doesn't it? Just after the Tower of Babel? It almost seems foolish to our human minds. How can he be so sure when things seem so grim? And the bottom line for this passage and the bottom line for this sermon is this. God's sovereign grace guarantees his promises. That it is God's sovereign grace and his sovereign grace alone that guarantees that his promises will be fulfilled. That is to say, first, that God is sovereign. He is the authority. He is over all things. He is in control. So he has the power to make it happen. And second, that God is gracious. Grace is his unmerited favor. His loving kindness to us, not because we're great or we've done things well, but despite the fact that we are actually sinful rebels. And his promises then depend solely on him and not us. And and despite our incessant desire to build our own towers to heaven, the reality is that our efforts are utterly futile. And yet God will come down in the line of Abraham and bless not just Abraham's family, but all the families of the earth. So with that, let me pray. And let's see how this can be so from this passage. God, we confess that we are uh, just incredibly prideful, incredibly self-focused, Um, Lord, we've 
we messed it we messed it up we messed it up over and over again and uh, we need your grace we need it every single day and even when we get things right somehow we we make it about ourselves and and thus get it wrong again and um, Lord we just ask for your forgiveness Lord help us to see uh, in your word this morning just how great and powerful, awesome you are. Just how loving and gracious, merciful of a God you are to us. I pray that it would humble us. I pray that it would uh, bend our hearts to you, God. Thank you, and I pray all these things in your name. Amen. So Genesis 11, it starts with another genealogy, right? And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking like, oh my gosh, why another genealogy? Seriously. But this genealogy, it foreshadows something amazing. God's sovereign grace guarantees his promises because God's choice is established. God's choice is established. See, whereas chapter 10 if you remember, was what we called a segmented genealogy. This is a linear one. This is uh, what we would normally think of when we think of a genealogy. It's, it's like the genealogy in Genesis 5, and actually it picks up where Genesis 5 le- left off, if you remember. And the comparison to Genesis 5 brings out two key observations. One from their similarities and the other from their differences. So let me, let me break that down for you really fast. First, the similarities. There is a continuity from Genesis 5 through Genesis 11, from, Abraham, from Adam all the way to Abram. You see, each generation or each genealogy is linear for 10 generations. And it ends with three sons. You remember in Genesis 5, it goes from Adam to Noah, and then it ends with Noah's three sons. And then Genesis 11 goes from Shem to Terah, and it ends with Terah's three sons. And so these two genealogies are meant to be compared and contrasted. And the linear genealogies were used to show legitimate claim to a throne or to an inheritance. Here it shows a claim to the blessing of God that he's promised. It's charting the seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15. You remember, God promises in Genesis 3.15, after Adam and Eve have sinned, he says, hey, there is the seed of the serpent, and there's the seed of the woman, and the seed of the woman will crush the head, the seed of the serpent. And so God is telling us there's this cosmic battle between good and evil, and eventually there will be one that will come that will bring the death blow. And that, that genealogy, that, that line of people is charted, Adam and Seth and Enoch and Shem and Abram. The blessing of Adam... The seed of the woman, the blessing of Shem, it's all connected to Abram by what? By sovereign choice. Second, 
there's a difference here. There's two differences, most obviously, between Genesis 5 and Genesis 11. First, first you can see that the length of the lives of the people in the genealogy is drastically shorter. However, notably, there's the omission of this phrase, and he died, that we saw in Abraham, uh, Genesis 5. You remember in Genesis 5, when we were going through that, we, we saw how these people's lives were so incredibly long, and yet at the end, it would say, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And that was unique in that genealogy. What, what could this mean that in this genealogy, the lives are getting shorter, and yet it's left that phrase off? I think what it's saying is, though lives are progressively shortening, God's promise of life is continuing forward. Whereas before in Genesis 5, it was saying, hey, these people are living a long time, and yet death has come into the world, which was the remarkable turn of events in Genesis 3, right? Here, it's saying the opposite. Though there's death in the world, though people are dying more quickly, and yet there is continuing this promise of life. What happens when we put these Similarities and differences together when we compare these two genealogies is what we see. What we see is that God's promise depends on the reality that His choice is established. God has been sovereignly in control since the beginning. That even when we bring death into the world through our sin... God finds a way to keep his promise. God has a plan from eternity past. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6 says this, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to what? According to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. See friends, I want you to know. Even though you keep messing things up. Even though you're screwing things up every day, just like me. And even if you feel just at at the bottom of of the barrel and, and... and maybe it's not even you messing things up. Maybe it's just that things are messed up around you. And it's just like sucking your hope away like, like a, a, the vacuum of space. I want you to know, if you are in Christ, God chose you. That's all that matters. And it's not like he chose you like, like kickball in elementary school, right? You get chosen for the kickball team. I don't know what that was like. I was always the person like left over at the end where it's was like, oh, crud, I got to take Cody, I guess. He's the only one left. But if that had happened, I would imagine that you would feel something like, oh, wow, I got picked for the so-and-so's kickball team. He knows how great I am at kicking the ball or catching the ball or running. I was not good at any of those things. And... And man, I'm so awesome. Aren't you so glad I'm, like, you picked me for your team? And that's somehow at times how we feel about God. 
Hey, God, aren't you so glad you picked me? Aren't you so glad I'm on your team? Look how awesome I am. I did so many cool things for you today. But, but that develops pride in us, right? And immediately, we're off-center. No, that's not what Ephesians 2 says, and that's not what Genesis 11 is getting at. What it says there is before the foundation of the world. Before God created anything, He made this decision. Before you or I did a single thing, good or bad, God had decided. It was established. That he literally established it before he established the foundation of the world. I guess you do what's most important first. And, and there is nothing we can do then to gain this grace. Or else it wouldn't be grace. But here's the wonderful thing. If there's nothing I can do to gain it, then friends, there's nothing I can do to lose it. God's promises depend not on us, but on His sovereign grace. And that should produce in us not pride, but humility and thankfulness and joy. Now, perhaps some may take offense to this idea that God has sovereignly, uh, that God has sovereign choice in His promise, and in His promise of salvation. But I think, I think that perhaps when we feel this way, I think we're missing the point of Genesis three through Genesis ten. I think about these chapters. Like I said before, humanity, who is up to us. We always choose pride. We always choose our own effort, our own ability, even when we know that it will fail. We always choose sin, and we will never choose God on our own, unless He first chooses us. Paul says it well in Romans 9. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on him whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on him on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The shocking question, friends, is not how could it be up to God's choice alone? The shocking question, the question that we should ponder is this. Why would God choose even one of us? That's the question that should keep us up at night. That's the question that should bring us to humility. That's the question that should cause us to have great joy for having been chosen and for knowing Christ. It's only because God's sovereign grace. And so God's sovereign grace guarantees his promises because God cho- God's choice is established. But how does this play out in real time? Well, is it just that, you know, before 
any of us were around, God chose, and then we'll find out when all of us are gone, I guess. In between, we just don't know. No, that's not at all what it's like. Genesis 11, 27 through 12, 3 shows us that God's sovereign grace guarantees his promises because God's call is effective. God's choice is established and his call is effective. Look at me, look, look at me, look with me at Genesis 11, starting in verse 27. We, we have first this short explanation of Terah's immediate family tree, right? And there are a few key details here that are going to end up being important to the upcoming chapters and to the rest of the story of Genesis. But there are two in particular that are important for us today. First, first is the reality that Terah takes Abram and others and he sets out for the land of Canaan. He doesn't realize that this is the land of promise. But we, reading the story... The, the Israelites, reading this story in the wilderness on the way to the land of Canaan, know when they read that, oh, he was going where we are going. But he doesn't get there, does he? He doesn't get there and he dies. The second, and I think probably maybe even the more important thing, is in verse 30, where it says, Sarai is barren. She has no child. No son for Abram. No passing on of the line that we have just seen in, in, earlier in Genesis 11 leading all the way from Adam all the way to Abram. And then Abram, and it stops. She's barren. There's no, there's no 21st generation, right? This is, this is huge. If you're reading it, you're going... This is, this is the line. This is Genesis 3.15 line. And, and there's no 21st generation. How is this going, how is this going to happen? How is God going to keep his promise? We'll see in the next few verses that God, in this critical point, this point where it seems like it has failed, he doubles down. He doubles down on his promises. Just so that we know that it doesn't have anything to do with us, right? And isn't that so true in your life? That you're asking God to do something, and, and it seems like it goes from bad to worse. And then when he moves, you go, well, there's no way that I could take credit for that. We see these two key elements of God's promise to Abram, a land and children. They aren't happening at the end of Genesis 11. They aren't happening until what takes place? Genesis 12, 1. Perhaps one of the most important verses in the Bible. If you can say some verses are more important than others, this is, has to be up there on the list. God inserts himself in human history. God isn't found by Abram. I want you to realize this. He's not found by Abram. He reveals himself to Abram. He goes to Abram and says, Now the Lord said to Abram, and God calls him, and he says, to the land that I will show you, the land of promise. But Abram doesn't know that yet. 
He doesn't even know what land it is. God says, go, I'll show you. How many times in your life have you felt like God's saying, go, and you got no idea where you're going? Like, but God, just, well, just tell me which way, where am I going, and then I can figure it out. And God's like, no, that's not how this works. You go, I'll get you there. Your job is to take the steps. Your job is to have faith. My job is to worry about the results. Because God's call is what? It is effective. We are not effective. God's call is effective. And then he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. Man, that's a bold promise to a man whose wife can't have kids, right? That is a bold, bold promise. Verse 4, and what we'll see in the coming chapters, what we'll see when we pick... Genesis back up is that Abraham responds with faith. And the New Testament tells us that that faith is credited to, to him as righteousness. You see, the effective call of God, though it's not on account of anything, any work that we do, the effective call of God always enables and leads to work in us. The effective call of God doesn't depend on our work but it produces our work. We respond freely in faith to God. And God's call is both outward and inward. We see that in this passage, and we see that in Scripture. First, it's inward in that it's by the Holy Spirit that God has to actually be there and do something, resurrecting us from sin and death by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Without the inward work of the Spirit, first, any outward call will be ineffective. This is the work of God, which He affects when He so please, is so pleased to do so, and it always results in faith in the one who's called. But then the call is also outward. God revealed himself. He, he spoke to Abraham. He told him the promises that he had for him. He revealed himself to Abram and he revealed the gospel through promise. Do you realize Genesis chapter 12 verse 1 through 3 is the gospel from behind looking forward. The promise of Genesis 12 was only a foreshadow of the true promise, the adoption, our adoption in the family of God by faith and admittance to his heavenly land. Abram's faith is looking forward to the promises of the gospel. And the faith of believers today looks back at the work of Christ in the gospel. God reveals himself today in his word and he's tasked us friends to be witnesses and to call people to him. Our job is the extent, our job is the outward call. It's the extent of that message. Making Jesus known to everyone. God's job is the effect. Saving those he's chosen by the word through his spirit. Friends, sometimes I think we get so wrapped up that we have to produce some result, that we need to affect something in someone else, and we fail to realize that that's not our job. 
That's not our job. In fact, we aren't even able to produce that effect. Only God is. God's sovereign grace guarantees his promises. When we see and experience that sovereign grace, it results in faith. To have faith, to have faith, you've got to know something. You've got to say, yeah, that something is true. And you've got to trust it as well. And trust takes action. Faith necessarily results in obedience. And that's what we see in Abram. And we continue to see when we jump back into Genesis. Too often, however, we fail in this. We make our faith out to be about believing the right things and yet not doing the things we know we ought to do. But God's command to Abram is to go to act according to his promises, even if he couldn't see how it would all work out. Too often, as I said at the beginning, we mess things up. We fail to believe in areas. And that failure of belief leads to disobedience. And we begin to wonder, God, will you really make good on your promises? How could you really make good on your promises? With someone like me, an eternal screw-up. Does our eternal destination depend on the strength of our faith right now? Sometimes as a, as a father, I see my kids struggling with something, I see them failing with something, whether it's chores or maybe a sport that they're doing or their homework, and they come to me upset or they are just upset and I hear them and I come to them, right, and, and they think that there's no hope for them in that task. There's no, there's no hope for succeeding in this thing. They can't see any way forward. There's no way to do it. But an 11-year-old or a 9-year-old or or whatever, their perspective is different than my perspective, right? Like, I've lived that. I've done that. I've been there. I know things that they don't know. And they come to me, and I try to encourage them, and I try to tell them, no, it's okay. You can do this. You'll get this. Don't give up. And I say, hey, if you would just... Listen to me, if you would just do this and this and this. And, and, they, and they hear me and they go, no, Dad, it won't work. No, this just won't work. I just can't do it. And I say, no. No, you can't. Just do, just do this next thing. I'll help you get there. And oftentimes the response is, I don't, I don't know. And I say, well, you don't know what? I don't know how that will work. I'm not telling you to know how it will work. I'm telling you to know me. Know your father. Trust me. I know. Let, the know. Let me know. Friends, you may not understand what's happening in your life right now. 
why you keep failing, why your things in your life are turning out the way that they're turning out. You may not even understand how God, you may know all about Jesus and what he's done, but, but yet go, but I just can't grasp how God could possibly save me. But if you, if you had to understand how it all happened, then is that faith in God or is it faith in your own ability to know? Your own brain in yourself. Friends, this isn't, this doesn't make it blind faith. I want you to understand something. This doesn't make it blind faith. It's faith that's not focused on your circumstances or your obstacles or your abilities or your lack thereof. It's faith that's focused on the true object of faith, Jesus. That's the faith of Abram. And he didn't know what land he was going to. He didn't know how he was going to get there. He didn't know how he'd have provisions for the journey. He didn't know how he was going to even have a child. But God promised. God called. God had chosen him. And he had faith and he went. And God did it. This is the truth. This is where the truth of God's sovereign grace is so sweet. If his choice is established and his calling is effective, then even though I mess things up just like the people before Abram did, even as Abram did from time to time, if you know the story, right? I can't spoil God's promises. I can't spoil God's promises. Guys, you can't spoil God's promises. His promises don't depend on the strength of our faith. They depend on the object of our faith. And that's Jesus. His finished work for us. God's sovereign grace guarantees his promises.